Friday lunchtime lectures at the Open Data Institute. Welcome to our ODI Friday's lunchtime lecture. Um, I'm Jamie Forsett. I'm a researcher here at the ODI, and I'm going to be introducing the lecture. Uh, just a quick note, the hashtag on Twitter is ODI Fridays, and for people streaming, if you have any questions, uh, we'll, we'll do the talk, and then we'll have some questions. We'll take questions from the room, but if anyone streaming has any questions, you can ask them via Twitter. If you're in the room and you don't like talking to people, you can also ask them via Twitter. So I don't think there's anything else to do other than introduce Joe. Joe's been doing the Open Inheritance Art Project, running that, uh, which we've been lucky enough to get involved with through the ODI Showcase program. So yeah, Joe. Hi, so I should probably say two things before I start. One is, uh, yes, I'm the founder of uh, Open Inheritance Art, um, and I'm on Twitter at uh, MentionTheWar. If you do feel uncomfortable heckling me in person, um, please please do feel free to troll, uh, troll me on Twitter. Um, I should also say that in my day job, I am Digital Development Manager at the National Archives now, um, but I'm here uh, as me. I'm not speaking for the National Archives, and often people do say that, but this time... I really mean it. Um, what I want to talk about today uh, are really are death, art, and taxes. And two of those things we know are certain, or you know, mostly certain in the 21st century. Um, but one of them is definitely much more slippery. You know, art is uh, quite mysterious. A work of art can appear and disappear. It can be lost and found. It can uh, transmute from valuable to valueless and back again without changing. So the same painting you know, perhaps give or take some, some botched Victorian restoration, can be seen totally differently, like this, uh, this, this, this new, in inverted commas, Raphael. So art is alchemical. It transmutes depending on what we know about it. And it's fragile because artworks are vulnerable to the ravages of time. They can be physically destroyed, either accidentally or deliberately. But unlike most everyday objects, they can also be destroyed by information. So if an expert finds that your Rubens is not a Rubens, then you no longer have a Rubens. It's an ex-Rubens, as John Cleese might say. And that is one of the reasons that the art world is a secretive one. There's a huge amount of money in it, to quote Sir Norman Rosenthal, and money and information can be inimical to one another. So low-information customers are attractive to many businesses, of course, especially if they have deep pockets. But information can affect value in the art world rather in the same way that it does in financial trading. And so galleries, owners and dealers um, are certainly discreet and they may even be secretive. And what that means is that the great strides that have been made in digitising public art collections by museums and galleries um, and by the uh, Public Catalogue Foundation in the form now of Art UK, which is an amazing website, wonderful resource, uh, you know, a consistently exciting project that's only going to get more exciting because uh, obviously recently they've received substantial uh, funds from the Heritage uh, Lottery Fund to uh, move their focus into sculpture. So we're going to see more and more great work for them over the next few years. Um, but these great strides on public art are not accompanied by great strides on private art. And these are works, paintings, sculptures, ceramics, metalwork, so on, which are by, of course, the same artists who we see in our public galleries, but which get to be enjoyed, except when they might be loaned uh, once in a while, um, to a gallery, which is, by the way, of benefit to both 
the owner uh, and the gallery, because the owner gets the provenance of their work buffed by curators, those private works are generally seen by few people rather than many. Uh, and of course, they're private property. You know, that's what private generally means, but not always. So like many countries, the UK is proud of its national heritage. But very early on, when estate taxes were introduced at the end of the 19th century, it seems to have become clear to the government that levying large taxes on valuable works of art would lead to those works being sold on the open market and consequently likely heading abroad. So those American heiresses marrying into the <coughs> British aristocracy, which we associate with the 1890s, or Downton Abbey, um, are part of a huge wave of capital siphoning art treasures from the old world to a new one. And so works which were deemed to be part of the national heritage were exempted from these early forms of estate tax. And then in the 1970s, Howard Wilson's Labour government ruled that owners receiving the exemptions should have to grant reasonable access to the works. And these were listed in hefty paper registers at locations like the National Art Library at the VNA. But by the 1990s, these arrangements were receiving very heavy criticism. So the tax relief had been estimated to have cost the Treasury £591 million pounds between 1986 and 1991 alone. Um, but the arrival of the internet seemed to solve this problem. Uh, what happened was that the rules um, on the amount of access were formalised and extended, and HMRC published details of all the works, which today <coughs> number around 36,000, on its website. So owners receive reductions in their estate and capital gains tax in exchange for making works available to the public, either for a certain number of days a year uh, in a public venue or by appointment. So this is not a loophole. I want to be clear about that. This is a very well-established tax scheme. And unlike other tax schemes that you may have read about recently, it's based on reciprocity. So owners receive benefits and they also uh, acquire obligations. And if those obligations are not met, then HMRC uh, are, are clear that they will require the tax to be paid on the current market value of the item. So that is the scheme that HMRC is managing, and this is how they offer uh, public access to it. Uh, this is the front end of their very attractive uh, database. And here is a lovely work of art, a painting by the artist uh, James McNeil Whistler. Um, or maybe it's lovely, we don't know because uh, we can't see it. So those of you listening on the podcast, you're not missing out anything at this point. Um, and that's, of course, because HMRC decided in its wisdom that it was very important to digitise the registers, but it was not uh, necessary to digitise the artworks. Now, I don't want to be too critical about that because as many people with experience of digitisation and open data projects, I'm sure there are many people in this room, will tell you, there is no direct link between digitisation and access. This is a myth, but it's a myth that I've heard some quite senior people who I'd hoped would know better recently uh, spouting, so let's, let's briefly talk about this idea. How can I digitise something without increasing access to it? Well, there's one very easy way, and that is to paywall it. So there are many cultural collections in the UK which are not only paywalled, but where providers will not provide individual access. So in other words, if I'm not an academic institution, I cannot. I, I, there's no mechanism for me to march up and say, actually, I would love to give you some money to view this collection. Can I do that? They will say, unfortunately, uh, you're not a university, so you can't do that. Um, and what that means is that those collections are then very useful for you know, scholars in those university settings, but they're of no use whatever to the general public. Um, 
And what can happen is that documents that have been published online might, perfectly legitimately, then be removed from public access for preservation reasons. They, they're not then produced for people to look at physically, which obviously causes them damage, whereas viewing them online uh, uh, is, uh, is, is much safer for them. So then it's not clear that we've provided, we may even have reduced access for some people, or we've widened access to one group and lessened it for another. Um, but because digitization is not access, I don't actually need a paywall to limit it. Um, museums were really pioneers, I think, in discovering the lack of connection between digitization and access because they were urged, as the internet came along, to build large-scale uh, collections databases and put those, or perhaps they had databases, but to put, them up, put those databases online. And when they examined their analytics, they came to understand that nobody really looked at those collections websites. And many, many people asked what really they were for. And this is because availability is not uh, engagement. Or to put it another way, just because I publish something, uh, who cares? Um, especially if I publish it uh, in the form of a database. So when, to, to, to take another example, you know, when historians write accounts of the past, particularly for a mass audience, they don't pile up every fact that they have and dump them on readers' driveways like flytippers. They compile them into interesting narratives that people want to read. And databases, certainly not relational ones at any rate, databases can't do that by themselves. So if we want database narratives or any other kinds of narratives, we have to consciously produce them. And this is the process that I, I hope we can now begin with what HMRC called tax-exempt heritage assets and most people call art, uh, like, our, like our Whistler painting uh, that we can't see. So what's, what's wrong with the HMRC website? For me, it, it, it lacks four crucial properties, and it's those four things that I wanted to try and achieve with open inheritance art, which is the system that we built to showcase these 36,000 works. So the first problem with the site is that it looks horrid. Um, so we've tried to build an attractive and inviting front end. Um, but the second problem with HMRC's site is that a precursor for access is normally that you know where something can be found. And the HMRC database can make it very difficult to establish where a work is located so it can be visited. Now, some of this is to offer perfectly legitimate protection for private owners um, who are worried, understandably, about security. But we have identified thousands of cases where these works are kept in venues which are open to the public on many or most days of the year, in stately homes, in museums, in galleries uh, of, of various kinds, some you know, huge national ones and some very niche ones. In fact, it, it appears to us that well over 20% of the items in the entire collection are held in just four venues. And we're identifying new venues which hold artworks all the time at the moment. So although we still have a huge number of items which are held in ones or twos in private homes, but we're starting to see the shape of this collection in a way that we couldn't before. Um, now, the third problem is this, this lack of images. So by interrogating HMRC's database, we started to build up a picture, at least, of the sort of artists that it contained. And you'll notice a lot of familiar names there. Uh, Van Dyke, Peter Lely, Joshua Reynolds, Godfrey Neller, Gainsborough, uh, Lawrence, Edward Lear in there, Millet, so on and so forth. Um, th this gives us some sense of the, what the painting portion of the collection, that's about 9,000 works, consists of. And I, one of the things that I spotted very early is that you can see portrait painters here um, 
looming very large. So that, that seems to, to, again, tell us something about the collection as a whole um, that, that we can't immediately see um, from HMRC's site. When I pitched the idea of this project to the Open Data Institute, I said what we wanted to do was turn tax-exempt heritage assets back into art. And I can say that with Whistler, at least, um, we've succeeded. It's pretty murky on this screen, but it's a very, it's a, it's a, it's a dark and mysterious scene, this, uh, this, this, uh, this, this, this painting of Chelsea Bridge. Um, so that's one case where we've managed to put, a, put, put, a, put a, um, an image back with its metadata. But there are thousands of other works that we haven't yet managed to track down, and which is why we're calling on the public to go out and visit these works, because the only way we're going to make a dent in um, uh, a collection at this scale is either through an enormous injection of funds or, more excitingly, if these rarely visited works are suddenly visited by large numbers of people. Um, what we want to do is make good on this promise of access and go out and enjoy what's out there and, of course, to photograph them for the Commons. So here are some of the works that we've collected so far. Why are we using uh, Wikimedia Commons to host the works? Um, there are really two reasons. One is because it seemed a bit daft to build, you know, like an open access image repository when there's a perfectly good one already out there. Um, and the second one, um, for me, a bit of a hobby horse, is uh, copyright. So there's a wide belief in the UK cultural sector that digital images of two-dimensional works in the public domain are not themselves in the public domain but contain new copyright. So if I take a photograph of a... Uh, a painting by a 17th century painter, um, a copyright exists in my photograph of that painting. And this is, uh, this is, this is entirely wrong, um, by which I mean both that it is clearly not in the public interest that works of art by the world's greatest long-dead artists are claimed by individuals and institutions, however worthy, in violation of the public domain, but it's also factually wrong. So the... Um, intellectual Property Office, the UK Intellectual Property Office, has been as clear as it can be that new copyright does not exist in these works. Um, they hedge a little bit. Given this criteria, it seems unlikely that what is merely a retouched digitized image of an older work can be considered as original, and they then explain why they believe that. This is the clear, this is the most unambiguous guidance that I've seen from any copyright authority on this matter in the UK. Um, so the reason I consider that Commons was a great place to put the, the content is because the Wikimedia Foundation and Wikimedia Projects as a whole have fantastic records uh, um, being clear about rights and ownership and in defending the public domain, and I think that's why they're a good home for our data. Um, and actually, there's a third reason, of course, which is a project like this, of course, can't function without open data. So, firstly, of course, we couldn't have done the project if HMRC hadn't published their website under the Open Government Licence, which is equivalent to uh, the Creative Commons Licence, CCBY, um, and which obviously I'm a huge, uh, I'm a huge fan of. Um, but within the HMRC database itself, works are described in a way that's sort of useful for us to understand you know, what, what they are, really in one field. So that which contains the artist, the title, uh, a description, uh, measurements, maybe where it's been exhibited. It's a, it's a mishmash. And only a system like Wikidata 
can provide open access to additional metadata which allows us to try and recognise, for example, artists within that field and then put those works in, back into some kind of context. And so this is the final problem with the HMRC website. It will never tell me the story of these works. It can't tell me a single fact of interest about that Whistler painting. It can't lead me through the collection or tell me why certain artists seem to be more represented than others. But looking at the collection as a whole, we can start to tell these stories. And I want to introduce my <laughs> colleague, um, Emily Guesta, from the Public History Programme at the University of York to talk about some of the first work we've been able to do looking at one set of artists in the collection. Uh, hi, so yes, my name is Emily. Um, I've been working with the Open Inheritance Art Project for about the last eight weeks as part of a placement for my program. And uh, I've gotten to do kind of a variety of different things um, through the website. So I've been linking some of the venues to the items in the collection, um, trying to track down and add more of those images to the Wikimedia Commons, uh, kind of identifying artists in the collection who don't have Wikipedia biographies right now. Um, our site links by the maker to kind of the Wikipedia entry for them, and there's several that didn't have that. So I've been doing a few different things and, and getting to kind of work a lot with the data and see the different items um, that are in the collection. And so kind of through doing this, something that really came out to me was the representation of female artists within the collection, um, and which they're fairly underrepresented, which I don't think is probably surprising to anyone. Um, the word cloud that Joe had up earlier, I think I was only able to spot one female artist among all those painters. Um, so that's just kind of an idea of how few female artists are represented. Um, and so kind of something that I took with my project and my work with it is kind of trying to highlight and kind of change this so that we can see more of these female artists and they can see them better represented. Um, so we've tracked about 50 images down on the Wikimedia Commons of these artworks. And so far, we've only been able to find one um, by a female artist. So this is the Sofinizva and Gusola one. Um, so one out of 50 is pretty kind of it's sad when you think of that, um, and it's not for lack of trying. I've been looking for female artists, um, kind of searching them, going through the database, um, and trying to find them, um, but they're just not out there. Sometimes they just haven't been photographed as well as some of the male artists have. Um, there's been some obstacles coming through with trying to find female artists. Um, one thing is that you can't search by the gender of the artist right now, so that makes it really difficult. You're kind of manually picking them out. Um, something else that pops up is that the data for the artists that we've gotten from the HMRC is not always consistent. So sometimes you have the full names of artists and sometimes you're just giving kind of the first initials and the last name, in which case it can be kind of trickier to determine what the gender of the artist is. And so it takes a little bit longer to kind of figure that out. So there's been a few kind of roadblocks along the way of trying to find that. Um, but it's been something that I've been trying to focus on. So it's not something that is unique to this collection. Um, you know, female artists are generally underrepresented. Um, there was a news article recently about how the Uffizi Gallery in Florence is trying to um, create gender equality within the artists they display. Um, so it's something that's kind of across the art community and then kind of just across communities in general. So as I was saying, part of the work I've been doing is creating artist um, biographies on Wikipedia. And by doing this, I came across the statistic that less than 17% of English language Wikipedia biographies are about women. Um, that's just for the English language one. I know that I think the only one that has gender equality in their biographies right now is the Welsh Wikipedia um, entries. So there's definitely work on that. There's organizations that are trying to change this. So um, when I kind of came across this, there was the Women in Red project, which is working on creating the red links on Wikipedia, which kind of link to a dead thing that doesn't have, um, doesn't have an article yet and changing them into the blue links so something that does have an entry. 
Um, so they've been working on that, and as well as Art and Feminism is an organization that's been organizing a lot of uh, Wikipedia edit-a-thons, especially this month for Women's History Month. So trying to change that, trying to add more, because there are female artists out there just because they don't have a Wikipedia biography. You know, it doesn't mean that they're not important. And that's something I came across is that, you know, the works of art in our collection, they have all been given tax-exempt status for some reason. So the arts or the artists are considered at some point significant or notable enough to be given um, a tax-exempt status. And yet a lot of these artists don't have kind of the representation. You don't necessarily know why. And so two of the articles that I've created so far for Wikipedia were on artists um, Beatrice Emma Parsons and Matilda Lotz, who are both made strides in their fields. They were kind of late 19th, early 20th century painters. Um, so they both had significant impacts, but they hadn't been represented yet. Um, Beatrice Emma Parson was one of the leading garden painters of her time. Um, she had over 20 solo exhibitions. Um, she was very successful. Uh, a lot of her works were used in publications, such as kind of garden manuals. Uh, Matilda Lotz was an animal portrait painter, and she um, traveled extensively. She won gold medals at the Paris Academy and had honorable mentions at the Paris Salon. Um, so they both made strides. They're both certainly significant, but didn't have entries for them yet. Um, so I was able to kind of search some information down and create that for them so that now these people who are in the collection, um, we have more information about them. So when people are looking through the Open Inheritance Art Collection and they come across these works, um, now we are able to have Wikipedia entries and so there's more information known for these artists. Um, and so just through my work, I've been trying to kind of change representation. Um, I can't change how many female artists are in their collection, but we can change how we talk about them. So trying to highlight them more on social media. Um, so, you know, as March is Women's History Month, I'm taking this opportunity to try to kind of highlight different objects or items in the collection that are associated with or made by female artists. I don't know what I've done there. Um, as well as creating the biography articles. And so, you know, just because they don't have them in there doesn't mean that we can't kind of represent them more. So they may make up a small portion of the collection, um, but, you know, we can still talk about them more and so that there's more representation of female artists there. Thank you very much. Oh, I see this has developed a mind of its own. That's all right. That's okay. Um, so the idea, um, thank you very much, Emily, is that as we've taken from the commons, I hope that we can give something back and um, start having conversations about these works because I think, as we've already established, building a database uh, is uh, a long way away from being the most interesting thing that you can do with an art collection. Um, what we have to do is to make collections and data accessible to people. How do we do that? Um, open culture certainly won't get us all the way there, but it's, it's, a, it's a good start. We cannot keep locking content away because we need it to be shareable and remixable. And I would argue that actually nobody needs open content more than the institutions that hold public collections because open data is spreading inexorably. And as it does, institutions which are not in the midst of a process of opening it up look increasingly bad. So here are four uh, of the good guys. You know, why not make it as, uh, as ridiculously reductively binary as that? But anyway, um, you know, we have here the Rijks Museum in Amsterdam, uh, the Yale Centre for British Art, a better source for open digitised British art than most UK collections, but not all. The National Library of Wales has a very 
simple and transparent system for copyright labelling on its website and where it can make works open, it has done. And most recently, a cultural behemoth, the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York, has put 375,000 works into the public domain. And this is in line with the stated missions of these institutions. They are knowledge-sharing institutions. That is what they are for. And that knowledge isn't supposed to be just for you know, those who can afford it. It is supposed to be for everybody. But if these museums do become the good guys, what does that make other institutions? How does it look to audiences and donors when some institutions are generous with public collections, public collections, and others are misers? And in any case, isn't really the evidence from the private sector that income streams come from innovative business models. They don't, in the long term, come from putting a padlock on content. Uh, what's, what's next for us? What's next for open inheritance art? We still have, and Emily's just alluded to some of them, huge problems with our data. We've done lots of enrichment, but I want to do much more. And we need, to, um, we need to develop these stories about our content so that we're reaching out to audiences as well as kind of databasing to them. Um, and finally, what should be the future of the tax-exempt heritage scheme? This kind of patently mad and utterly British, as someone described to me, uh, <laughs> scheme. I, I've now spent far too long thinking about this. I can't answer that question. So what I hope we've done with this website is to start a conversation about that. So it's not for me to say if the tax-exempt heritage scheme represents value for money. What I can do is try and inform a debate about whether it does represent that. That was much harder to judge, I think, before we uh, started looking uh, at the, the distribution of these works. HMRC keeps no records of visits uh, to these works. What we can say is that if these works remain unvisited, then we're clearly not receiving much return on investment. As we've said, you know, mere access is not engagement, so I hope this project will encourage HMRC and maybe the government more widely, to think more about how to engage audiences beyond a few art historians for these collections. Because if we're not engaging anyone, then our access has you know, bought at the cost of hundreds of millions of pounds of tax relief, has been bought very dearly indeed. I don't know how to measure the real value of art, the social value, but I do know that art that's unseen is valueless to anybody except its owner. And as so often, I'm sure it's been said many, many, many times in this room, you know, the opposite of open uh, isn't closed, it's irrelevant. Um, and that's where I'd like to finish. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Joe. That was really good. And thank you, Emily, as well. Does anyone have any questions in the room? Or I might kick us off if we... Oh, we've already got one. Okay. Uh, just a practical question. What are the four locations that these artworks are in? Oh, off the top of my head, they are um, Allthorpe is certainly one. Well, uh, well uh, yes, Welbeck Abbey and sort of Cavendish House. Um, Corsham Court in Wiltshire is another one. And the largest, Arund I was going to say Arundel Castle. Oh, Ar yeah. Arundel Castle has by far the largest collection of these works. It has more than 3,000. And consequently, that means it has uh, more than 10% of the collection just by itself. Yeah, yeah, yes, indeed. If you are, if you are a tax-exempt heritage art spotter, <laughs> that, is, you know, that is your Disneyland. You should all head down there. <laughs>
Sure. Are they on display so there in Del Castle? So they may not all be on public display at any one time. Actually, when you, again, as you start to drill down, the reason that Arundel Castle seems to have so many in the collection is because a very large proportion of them are uh, books in its library. So it has had individually um, a large number of, you know, kind of first editions and rare, rare books to a given definition of rare book um, added, added to the register. And that has massively swelled it. So probably if you walked into the library, you would be seeing several thousand of those items in, uh, in one view, as it were. And it's something I'd love to do, you know, for the future, something I'd love to do with the collection is to, uh, online is to be able to link um, from those books to digitised editions of those books. So even if I can't see the thing, I could at least have a bit of a flick through and go. And the Internet Archive is a great place to, uh, to, to catch uh, 19th and earlier um, century books. Having worked for one of these owners of collections that are very private and it is really frustrating that they're locked down things like paywalls um the digitization of work as it were so the the actual physical activity of scanning content into somewhere and storing it somewhere is one thing and then being able to represent it is another but what's i guess from your personal perspective what's your actual agenda when it comes to experiencing the art itself because as anyone who's been to a gallery that's finally got to see an image which they have maybe known for a really long time that is an incredibly different experience to looking at a print in an Athena store or you know even looking at something in Google Images so what what's what's your motivation in terms of like does it are you saying that it doesn't really matter anymore that there's a physical asset, just that there's some way of being able to asset, access it from somewhere? <laughs> um, no, I mean, no, no, absolutely not. No, I'm, I'm very clear. You know, the, firstly, the quality of the images that we have been able to um, collect, I would describe as poor. And that's, that doesn't bother me at all because they're designed to represent a work. They're, they're there to allow... Um, you know, potential visitors to make intelligent decisions about, uh, you know, should they go and see something. They're not there as any kind of substitute for that experience. Um, you know, I've worked in um, the, I mean, I've worked where I've worked now for quite a long time, but I've worked in the museum sector. You know, the, appe the appeal of the real uh, that people sometimes talk about, uh, you, cannot, um, you cannot match that experience you can provide a different experience. So the, some, one of the great things about Google Art Project is being able to see uh, images of works at very, very high levels of magnification. You, know, you can see details there that actually it's quite difficult to see up close with the painting. But the idea that that is some replacement for that experience is obviously nonsense. It is simply a different experience. It's a, it's a really interesting and exciting experience, but it, it can't easily be compared with actually going down and seeing a painting, partly especially with paintings which, you know, on the internet become very flat works, but we know actually have a, have a real, do have a real materiality about them and, you know, often exist in layers and there's a, there's, there's, there's a, there's a, a, a quantifiably different experience in seeing them up close and personal as well as an obvious qualitative one. So, oh, no, heavens no. <laughs> Um, you spoke a bit about like um, intending on enriching the information that's in the collections. Is there any intention to like um, 
do that via sort of linked data and in response also feeding the information that you have back into the sort of semantic web as it evolves? Yes. I, funnily enough, I just got pinged last night. By, so, uh, you know, Emily said that one of the problems that we have is, you know, in an ideal world, I could uh, run the list of artists uh, against the server and we could work out their genders and that would take, uh, you know, a couple of minutes to fire all the queries off. Um, in practice, because we, um, you know, they just text, we don't know very much about them. What we've tried to do then is to fire those um, as inquiries at Wikidata. So we have succeeded in matching large numbers of uh, artists. We have not succeeded in matching large numbers of artists. So we've got a very, we've got a very patchy picture at the moment. But if you go to uh, an artist page in the site, you may well see Wikidata represented there. And as to um, putting things out the other way around, I just got pinged by somebody who works on Wikidata yesterday to say that they're looking at turning um, HMRC IDs, and we use the same IDs in our site, uh, into a property within Wikidata. So that will be another way that I hope we can um, give back to the semantic web in that sense. I guess I'm just interested in the fact that obviously you've, you've done this huge piece of work to kind of bring the images closer to metadata. And I think this relates slightly to your question um, just previously about how, is there any additional sort of open access in terms of the, if you like, owners of this, these artworks in terms of enriching that data or any sort of efforts to, to make it a more collaborative and more um, enriched experience across the board? Yeah, so we haven't had a chance yet to kind of take a breath and uh, think about contacting the owners. It's very interesting, you know, you, um, the, the, the Daily Telegraph did contact some owners in the course of uh, researching their story, and that gave a view of a certain kind of uh, owner. Uh, that it's very easy to, um, uh, I don't know, kind of, kind of pigeonhole owners, but when you go out and look at a few of these things, you meet terribly, actually, in my experience, you meet terribly nice people who happen to have something that, um, you know, was left to them by um, a relative and that they're actually very enthusiastic about. And the kind of stories that we were, we were talking about is what they will tell you about it. I was just thinking around the, the ideas of, of how you enrich the narratives around these artworks and, and that, that strikes me as a way of encouraging this difference between just because it's digitized doesn't and there's access available doesn't necessarily mean people engage with the content and and certainly on one side that that presumably would would help yeah no i agree what what i what i hope is that um we'll start to because what, what we really want you're right is the um is is kind of what can be gleaned from those experiences it's not just about somebody going out and having a um, uh, you, know, you know, kind of encountering an art artwork and having an interesting afternoon. In an ideal world, we'd like to tell them a bit. Of, we'd like them to tell us a bit about that, especially if it included some information about the work that isn't widely known. Um, and I think, you know, my impression is that some owners are extremely generous with their with their time and expertise, because that's not called on very often at the moment. Just something to add to that that I've come across in my experience working through the, the data. Some of the entries 
have quite a well, like, good description of what the artwork is. And so you kind of start to get a narrative through that. I'll talk a little bit maybe about where they've been displayed previously, um, you know, and that. But there's also on the flip side where you have some where it's just, I mean, the basic data that they've been given. So one that I came across was an entry and all of the information was given was uh, a sleigh in brackets in poor condition. Um, and so there's obviously some story to that. There's something that the sleigh is significant enough to be given this tax exempt status, but that's where kind of we fall back is that we don't have the story. I mean, who did this slave belong to? Who made it? What does it look like? Um, and so, you know, hopefully as we go along, we can get more of that. But, you know, you do get some that have more description than some that are just kind of the bare bones. Yeah, some of the, there's, so there's no standard, I mean, this is, you know, obviously when we're, when we're thinking about fitting about with data, we're looking for standardization and there isn't any. Actually, as Emily says, some of the descriptions are fantastic. They're better than museum level descriptions uh, and some of them are really terrible. <laughs> so I first came across this project or anyway the HMRC database I think it was before you had begun the project because Wikipedia decided that they would encourage people to go take photographs of these things so that they could be added to the maybe it was Wikidata this was I don't know Six months ago, or something. Yes. No, that was a, that was something that we. That were, was related yes, to you. I'm yeah, not surprised. Just at the point we were kicking, we didn't have a site then, but Wiki uh, Wikimedia were running Wiki Loves Monuments, and there seemed an opportunity to yeah. do something there. So, how successful was that initial project in getting you images? Uh, it was a total failure. <laughs> And I'm sorry to say, I did not go out and take any images. No, no, no. I, was, so, I thought that's a great idea, so but then the, I didn't and, do this, so I'm the, sorry. This is the thing about, I mean, this is, this is the problem that I can't solve. You know, there is a very significant barrier to access when you don't, well, firstly, when you, because we didn't have a site at that point, we couldn't give people a lot of guidance about where the things were. And obviously we couldn't, show, the whole point was for them to, to give us images. But this issue about having to, you know, the works that are not in what I call semi semi public venues. Obviously, they're, they're they're private in some sense. You know, of having to make contact with an intermediary. You know, with with having to send a letter to someone's lawyer. And the fact that okay, it's not actually that difficult to sort out. We 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 put some systems in place within the site just to try and reduce the friction in that exchange just a little bit, so that make it easier for people to supply the information that they that they need to supply in order to kind of broker setting up a meeting. But it's, it's very, very, I'm not sure how well we've done that. And it's, it's very, very difficult. Without some change in how, you know, these things are organized, it, you, you, you can only rock up and see certain of these things, you know, in, in certain places. And there are other things where, you know, you, you're in a, something of a cooling off period. You can't go, oh, I'm going to leap out this afternoon. I'm inspired by this lecture. I'm going to leap out and see a work this afternoon. Uh, you could pop down to the National Gallery and do that, but you, um, you, you know, you can't go to a, you know, the 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 kind of proverbial semi in North London that I'm always quoting. You know, that's gonna that's gonna take a while, and that I think put people off because there's a whole lot of built heritage out there that they could just go and walk up and photograph. So that was a it was a shot across the bow to see how that how that worked, but it didn't. Well, I, it didn't. I hope you can find a way to get more images and make this more uh, if if we are inspired right now what what is your sort of call to action other than obviously we can go we can go and look at the photos but is there anything that other people can do uh maybe emily you have some ideas around what you'd like help with like 
whether that's filling out Wikipedia biographies and doing that research, the sort of thing that people can add to the project without going through those stages. I yeah, guess. sure. Well, I think my 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 call to you know to kind of to this room and this audience would be the same call that I'm sure has been made from this platform many many more times, which is you know to do play around with this data. You know, do uh, do help us explore it. Do um, uh, you know? We're interested in tracking down where we think that these works have already been digitized, because obviously that's quicker than going out and knocking on doors. Um, we, we're interested in finding new avenues to enrich what we've got. Um, and we're interested in really anything that anybody can tell us about um, these works. I'd like to work with more art historians um, so that we can, we can provide more context than we are at the moment. Um, I think Art UK have got quite good at, at turning, again, a, a, a big collection into small stories. And I'm interested in exploring that. Um, but also, it's like Open House Weekend. Do go out and, you know, do go out and see them. Uh, you briefly mentioned relational databases and narratives. Um, I was wondering, maybe, sorry if you covered this already, but is the database that you guys are making, is it relational? And does that facilitate how people might be able to go and work with the data and find those narratives that might increase engagement? Or So I don't believe it's a, it's a SQL database. Um, so there's nothing remotely um, fabulous about that. I, I was just reading, funnily enough, on the, tr on, the tr on the train in this morning, someone who was kind of like, here's how to, you know, here's how to combine uh, your database with a PHP library and Google Sheets to create narratives. And what he meant by narratives was where you have turned some wiki data into some full sentences. Uh, and, you know, however much wiki data you have, that's how many sentences you have. And that is obviously not, that's not what I mean <laughs> when I talk about uh, narratives of this kind. So I, what, what it becomes about are people looking at the works, looking at the data and telling interesting stories about them. And it's always, I think, the advice for cultural collections today would always be don't rush out and procure this huge database if, if you've got a limited budget and you could tell 10 fantastic stories about 10 of your objects rather than telling a thousand really poor stories about a thousand of your objects. But we have the, you know, we have the data that we have. So that's the place that we're starting from because our, you know, we're starting from a very low level of understanding. And as we increase it, I hope we can, we can tell more stories. I guess so one last point is that obviously all the data is available uh, via GitHub, isn't it? But on the link, yeah, we have a the... we have a data dump. I, I, we haven't got a um, we haven't got a dump of our kind of enriched uh, data yet. But I will. I'll be putting that up as soon as I've got it on my person. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's very easy to just walk away with that data if you are interested in having a play with it. Fantastic. And if we don't have any more questions, then I'd like to wrap it. Up and uh, if you can uh, join me in thanking uh, both Joe and Emily for their talk today. You've been listening to a Friday lunchtime lecture brought to you by the Open Data Institute.